I once again have nothing to share. I got which CPR is okay certified because today. I have a long story. <laughs> I got CPR certified in high school. I did too. They're like, has anybody done it. this before? And I was like, high technically, count? they made everybody. In high was there? It was a six-hour course. It was like one PE class period to get the CPR certification in high school. I think it was like two because for some reason they had us watch that movie. This, like that Cinderella Man or something with Jake Gyllenhaal. It's oh, like right. a boxing movie. <laughs> but then Why you're also that? learning how to do CPR, which I don't even think they do CPR in that movie. I did not watch it. That's really weird. But, but I do remember I think it was two that. classes because you had Yeah, to... you watched anyway. that and then you did the certification in the wrestling room. No, we did ours in the weird pool room. Oh, we did ours in the wrestling room and they like we got to move all the wrestling mats around so we could sit on them while they like talked to us. <laughs> that room stinks to this day. Weird pool room. They built the pool and then there's like a big office room. Oh, I never went in that ex- like that. It's um, like a dance studio sort of room. No, I totally there believe were mirrors you. All the that walls. entire edition though, never went in it. Because it, it got built and finished. My I don't think junior, it actually went in the pool room. My junior year, and then like I never needed to go into it for my senior yeah. year. I was done with. I'm like. They made us do swimming in PE. That makes sense. It sounds terrible. I'm very happy there was no pool there. It was I... literally also, like, the very beginning of my freshman year. Yeah. It wasn't second semester PE. It was first semester. I'm brand new in the school, and I'm walking around with chlorine in my hair all day. Yeah, it's... It's wild. Anyway. <laughs> um, do you have anything else to share? I haven't really done anything since we last recorded. Okay. Then I will start... This is gonna be a long one. Would you like to see? Yeah. I'm pretty sure when yours are long, it always overwhelms me because you use a format that I'm not used to, and it just like it doesn't tell me nothing on it tells me how long it's gonna be. It just keeps going. It's longer than last week's. Like it just keeps going. Like I understand the (laughs) scroll bar is there, but like I have no concept of how much like the scroll bar moving equals. Oh my gosh, it's so much. This is last week. Oh, yeah. Now look at the size of the scroll bar. This one's insanely long, Mimi. <laughs> I just kept finding stuff. And honestly, there's more that I could have even put in. But I was like, there's... It's I'm, really... I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> well, and it's like, it was... I mean, it's like not not important stuff, but it was just like extra to what I already have. Mine's, you know, like side tidbits. I couldn't even tidbits. tell you... I, I can't even remember right now. I'm sure as soon as I like start talking about my story, I'll remember how I got there. But it's like the most roundabout crazy thing that I ended up there because it was not something that ever should have appeared on a search. <laughs> okay. But I think so, you'll love him. I think he might be your favorite historical figure once you've heard about him. Possibly. It's certainly not this person. <laughs> so today I am covering Sandra Rivet and John Bingham. And he's the one I'm referring to as, I certainly don't like him. Mm-hmm. So, I got my information from wikipedia.org, theguardian.com, lordlucianthetruth.com, static1.squarespace.com, bradford.ac.uk, and dailymail.co.uk. Yeah, it's like in London. I'm pretty sure the whole time. My person was it was in London for a little bit, so we did it. Woo-hoo. Same space. Well, I looked up Alabama, and I'm like, most of the stories here are just not. I mean, not doing it for I, me. mine shouldn't have been considered Alabama. It 
it's one of those those all over he's yeah he, he's globe trotting <laughs> so richard john bingham was born on december 18th 1934 at 19 bentick Bent, street how do you say that with a british accent i can't british accent <laughs> uh marylebone london so, you know, yeah, there's a lot of names in here I'm not even going yeah, to, I'm not going to put in my effort Marilabone. to pronounce because it's just British names and... And who knows, who knows what, which letters <laughs> they actually say in them. So, he was the second child and older son of George Bingham, 6th Earl of Lucian and Anglo-Irish peer, and his wife, Caitlin Elizabeth Ann Dawson. So, I already don't like him. If you have a title to your name, I don't want to know you. <laughs> so, like, why? Because he's Anglo-Irish? Like, what? No. <laughs> so were you. Um, a blood clot was found in his mother's lungs, so she stayed in a nursing home. So John was initially cared for by the family's nursery maid. So, like, Lucy after, Sellers. I assume that means immediately after his birth, yeah. she had this complication. Mm-hmm. Which is, by the way, a, like, com- that's, not, that's not a weird complication yeah. for, for um, pregnant people. Mm-hmm. At age three, John went to a pre-prep school in Tite Street with his older sister, Jane. In 1939, the two were taken to Wales due to the Second World War approaching, so they were, like, taken to safety. That's where all the, yeah, all the kids were sent um, to. In 1940, the kids, including the younger siblings, Sally and Hugh, went to Toronto, Canada, mm-hmm. and then moved to Mount Cisco, New York, where they stayed for five years with... Marsha Brady Tucker, who was a multimillionaire. John was enrolled at the Harvey School and spent summer holidays away from his siblings at a summer camp in the Adirondack Mountains. It's beautiful there. You'd like it. I bet. So while the kids were in the U.S., they lived very well and were given pretty much anything that they wanted. But when they returned to England in February of 1945, they saw for the first time what was going on in wartime Britain. Um, rationing was still happening. Their former home had been bombed, and the family's house at 22 Eaton Square had its windows blown out. Uh, the family had noble ancestry. The sixth Earl and his wife were agnostics and socialists. Which is surprising because they had noble ancestry. Yeah, and liked to live a more austere life than what Tucker did, the lady in, mm-hmm. in the U.S. So for some time, John suffered nightmares and was taken to a psychotherapist. And as an adult, he remained an agnostic, but ensured that his children attended Sunday school because he wanted them to live a traditional childhood. This is before he had children. Mm-hmm. At Eden College, John started gambling and supplemented his pocket money with income from bookmaking and put his earning into a secret bank account, earnings into a secret bank account, um, he would regularly leave the school grounds to attend horse races, Game and addiction. according to his mother, John's academic records were far from creditable, but <laughs> he became captain of Rose House before leaving in 1953 to undertake his national service. I don't know what Rose House is. Group I for something. Yeah, or like being an RA, or, you know, but, something like that. Um, so, I don't think he graduated. It sounds like he had a good social time. Um... Addiction is not a good system. <laughs> well, no, but like the re- like if he was elected that position, that, yeah. I assume that means he had some social standing at least. He became a second lieutenant in his father's regiment, the Coldstream Guards, and was stationed mostly in Crefield, West Germany. 
He left the British Army in 1954 and joined William Brandt's Sons & Co., which was a London-based merchant bank, on an annual salary of £500, I'm guessing. Was that what they were using at that time? I assume so. Um, so, in 1960, he met Stephen Raphael. Who was a rich stockbroker who was a skilled backgammon player. They holidayed together in the Bahamas, went water skiing, and played golf, backgammon, and poker. John became a regular gambler and an early member of John Aspinall's Claremont Gaming Club in Berkeley Square. So There's that rich gaming people addiction stuff. Again. He often wanted games of skill like backgammon and bridge, but he also accumulated huge losses. On one occasion, he lost 8,000 pounds, which was about two-thirds of the money he received annually from various family trusts. Another time, he lost 10,000 pounds. His uncle, by marriage, stockbroker John Bevan, uh, helped him pay that particular debt, and John repaid his uncle two years later. Just a, a heads up, there's a lot of Johns in this story. <laughs> it is just the most boring name ever. And almost everyone, every man uh-huh. in this entire thing is named John. Which his first name's Richard, but like, for it looked like he went by John. He left Brant's around 1960, shortly after he had won 26,000 pounds playing... Chemic de Fair? I've never heard of that in my life. One of his colleagues, I mean, I know I took these notes, but when I typed it, I was like, I don't have a clue what that is. One of his colleagues had been promoted before him, which was part of why he left the job. And he said, quote, why should I work in a bank when I can earn a year's money in one single night at the tables? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I get oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Your parents did not do you well. Because you also have a lot of debt and you've had this issue <laughs> that you couldn't pay it back before. So he traveled and $26,000 is not a lot of money to be like, I'm set for life. Get me out of here. He traveled to the U.S. with, I'm assuming, with his winnings, where he played golf, raced power boats, and drove his Aston Martin around the West Coast. His Aston he Martin also cost <laughs> more than what he won. <laughs> he also visited his older sister Jane and his former guardian, Marsha Tucker. When he returned to England, he moved out of his parents' house because he's rich beyond belief <laughs> in St. John's Wood and into a flat in Park Crescent. John met his future wife, Veronica Duncan, early in 1963. She was born in 1937 to Major Charles Poorhouse Duncan and his wife, Thelma. Veronica's father died in a car accident when she was young, after which her family moved to South Africa. Her mom remarried and her family moved back to England, where her new stepfather became manager of a hotel in Guildford. She and her sister, uh, Christina... Went to school at St. Swithin's School (laughs) in Winchester. She was good at art, so she studied at an art college in Bournemouth. That's definitely Bournemouth. (laughs) I don't care. Don't spell stuff like this. Veronica and her sister later shared a flat in London, where Veronica worked as a model and later as a secretary. Christina married wealthy William Shane Kidd, who was half-brother of Peter Shane Kidd. And they're, they're saying this like I should know. Um, stepfather to Diana Spencer, later the Princess of Wales. Like, that's why people princess would know who that is. Gotta love her. They killed her. Okay. Um, and the William, you know, Christina and William is what 
introduced Veronica to London High Society, which led to Veronica meeting John at a golf club function. How <laughs> riveting. So, the news of their engagement appeared in the Times and the Daily Telegraph newspapers on October 14th, 1963, and the two got married at Holy Trinity Church, Brompton, on November 20th of that year. Very it's quick, like, it's like in St. Louis. We say all kinds of words, wackadoodle, but we know that. Yeah. And it's fun to see how other people will do it and they'll tell them. But if you're ever talking to anyone around here and they say this, this is what they actually mean. And we like, mm-hmm. it's, we're informative. We know we say it wrong. And then we make sure you know what we're talking yes. about when they say it on the radio or something. And British people are just like, how dare you? We got away from you for a reason. <laughs> and this is part of it. It's because of how you pronounce your down name. <laughs> it's because we're sick of that. So they honeymooned in Europe. Um, they traveled first class on the Orient Express. I want to do that so bad. Which I just thought was... Me, I've never heard of people traveling for real on the Orient Express. You're I just think of day. the movie. That's, that's still I had to include it in there because I just thought of the movie. John received a marriage settlement designed to finance a larger family home and any fr- future, I almost said furniture, future additions to the Lucian family by his father, which helped his poor financial situation because he was still a gambling addict. He... Repaid some of his creditors and bought 46 Lower Belgrave Street, which is a house or possibly a condo situation, in Belgravia. Yeah. Is that a town? I think so. Or just like a suburb? I think it's just I a think suburb. It's more like of a sub- I think it's like a neighborhood. Like, that's um, what it would be. And had it redecorated here. to suit Veronica's taste. So. How lovely. Okay. Two months after the wedding, on January 21st, 1964, John's father died of a stroke. Oh. He inherited John, the, the alive. Mm-hmm. Well, John's father isn't named John. Why am I saying the alive John? <laughs> because there's too many Johns in this. He inherited 250,000 pounds and his father's titles, Earl of Lucian. It's definitely Lucan. Whatever. <laughs> Baron Lucan of Castlebar. Baron Bingham of Mel... Melcombe. Bingham. <laughs> oh gosh, Baron Bingham of Malcolm Bingham. <laughs> Please, and I'm begging you. Bingham and Baronet Bingham Castlebar. of Castlebar. Veronica became the Countess of Lucan. They had that, three so. children together: Lady Frances Bingham, who was born on October twenty-fourth. <laughs> it says sixteen ninety-four. <laughs> That's interesting. Nineteen sixty-four. <laughs> oh, that's too good. Lord George Bingham, September 21st, 1967, and Lady Camilla Bingham, June 30th, 1970. After the birth of their first kid in early 1965, they hired a nanny, Lillian Jenkins. John tried to teach Veronica about gambling and hunting, shooting, and fishing. He said, listen, honey, you need to know. Here's some hobbies you need. (laughs) Um, He also bought her golf lessons, but she later gave up the sport. He's also including her, though, which is more than a lot of guys. Think about... Don't try to make him Think about your friends. No, I'm not trying to, but it is interesting. (laughs) I understand he had to be the bad guy. You already told me that. I mean, if you're the rich person in London, are you ever going to be the good person? The answer is N to the O. No. Unless your princess die. And I'm sure she even had some bad things. Not necessarily in her own past, because she wasn't that old. 
But, but her like family, her family for sure did sketchy things in correct. the past. Jaron's daily routine went like this. Breakfast at 9 a.m., coffee, dealing with the morning letters, reading the newspaper, and playing the piano. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes he'd go jogging in the park and he would take his Doberman for walks. Lunch at the Claremont Club was followed by afternoon games of backgammon, of course. Gosh, what would he man, be without his like, gambling? Super duper does not work. He would return <laughs> home to change into black tie and would normally spend the rest of the day at the Claremont, gambling into the early hours. Sometimes Veronica would be there to join. Oh, my goodness. He was described by friends as a shy and taciturn man, but with his tall stature, quote, stature, I think it sounded like statue, but I did not say that, a quote, luxuriant guardsman's mustache and masculine pursuits. His exploits made him popular because he had a mustache, apparently. It was what made him popular. Oh, he, he was, was tall an and ugly had a mustache. individual. <laughs> he was, and I'm not going to lie. He would hire private aircrafts to take his friends to races, one of the most expensive cars, and drank expensive Russian vodka, as well as raced powerboats. He loves racing those powerboats. He just He's done that for a while now. Reminds him of his uh, American days. In September 1966, he unsuccessfully screen-tested for a part in Woman Time 7. They look like robots. Yeah, they're creepy. I had to look them up, because you, like, like you commented on how they look. I had to look them up. They he look doesn't like... look terrible from this front, but there's a side picture where his nostrils are so long and large, like this. Like That's this. probably why he has the mustache. Yeah. No, but they look they look like robot versions that would be in like a Hollywood spy movie. Correct. Um, prompting him to decline a later offer from film producer Albert R. Broccoli. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's his name, I swear to God. Hold on. To screen test him for the role of James Bond. Oh. Well, that's actually very <laughs> funny that I just said that. Look it up, because I swear to you, it's, his name is Albert R. Broccoli. Albert R. Broccoli? <laughs> yes. That's what it said. And I typed it out. Okay, well, it comes up, it comes with up. James Bond. <laughs> So his name is Albert R. Broccoli. So anyway, being a, the professional gambler that he was, which personally I would not call him a professional gambler, I would just call him unemployed. <coughs> he was a skilled player and once rated amongst the world's top ten backgammon competitors. He won the St. James's Club Tournament and was champion of the West Coast of America. He gained the nickname Lucky Lucian, Lucan. Sorry, I will say Lucian for probably the rest of this, and everybody's just going to have to get used to it. But his losses very, very, very much outweighed his winnings, and he wasn't actually lucky at all. He was very interested in thoroughbred horses, so in 1968, he paid more in race entry fees than he received in winnings. Despite some arguments over money, Veronica really didn't seem to know much about his losses in gambling or otherwise. After having their last two kids, Veronica suffered from postpartum depression and John became apparently really involved in her mental well-being. In 1971, he took her for treatment at a psychiatric, I think I need to go, because I can't read today, at a psychiatric clinic in Hampstead where she refused to be admitted, but she did uh, okay home visits from a psychiatrist and to be put on antidepressants. In July, of I, I don't know if taking your wife um, to be put away 
in an institution would be considered positively involved in her well, mental well-being. That's what I said, apparently. Because <laughs> they're, like, saying, what a good husband. He's really wow. worried about he's his like wife. worried about her. It's like, no, she's a little too hysterical. We're he's locking like, her up for the rest of her life. Of Actually, one. lobotomies. Are we still like doing those one. right now? In July of 1972, the family want, went on a vacation to Monte Carlo, but Veronica went home Audrey's early. Audrey's dream vacation. <sighs> I don't want to drive on that road. How long did you get to drive? I don't want to gamble. <laughs> um, I'm not a gambler. I know you're not. Yeah, so she, so Veronica had gone home early. John, and she left John and the kids. Mm-hmm. She, she didn't. In Monte Carlo, because she was like, <laughs> I gotta go home. So at this point, like Veronica having postpartum depression is when he was like, uh, I'd like a new wife, please. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm done with this one now. She's this not, one is problematic. She, and I have to, like, she has in. feelings and I don't Ew. like it. So the pressure of their finances, John's gambling addiction and Veronica's mental health took a toll on their marriage, which, like I said, Veronica, I don't believe is the problem. No, I don't think He's so. He's clearly been a big problem throughout his whole life. I mean, maybe she's a problematic woman. I don't know. And her mental health rapidly declining. But she hasn't done anything. You know, that, I don't know. Like would cause any. So two weeks after a weird family Christmas in 1972, John moved into a small property in on or in Eaton Row. I don't really know. Um, because I don't know what it if is. If that's a street <laughs> yeah. So, months after this, he moved into a larger rental on Elizabeth Street. Veronica tried to reconcile at some point in the following months, year, whatever. But John just wanted custody of his kids by this time. Which, like I said, I'm pretty sure as soon as she starts showing any sign of the toll it takes of motherhood. Mm-hmm. He was like, yeah, get her. I don't want her anymore. Um, he wanted to show that Veronica was unfit and started to spy on his family and later hired a private detective. He also tried to get doctors to say that she had, quote, gone mad, locking her up in the asylum. Um, but they said that she was just, she just had depression and anxiety. You know he was shopping for lobotomies. Like, <laughs> you, honestly. He just wanted to lock her up the rest of her life and never have to deal with her again, I'm sure. So, John told his friends that no one would work for Veronica, um, she had hired, like, different nannies. So, by the time all of this, like, the issues were going on, they had fired the longtime nanny, Jenkins, who I'm pretty sure I mentioned earlier. Yeah, that um, got in December in of, yeah, 1972. So, from this point in 1972, December 1972, they have, like, a bunch of different fill-in nannies. So, one of the fill-in nannies, Stefania Sawicka, said that that Veronica had told her that John had hit her with a cane and had on one occasion pushed her down the stairs. Veronica also told her that she feared for her safety and told her not to be surprised, quote, if he kills me one day. One day, while Stefania was out with two of the kids, she was confronted by John and two private detectives. They told her that the kids had been made wards of court and that she must release them into his custody, which she did. I personally would have been like, children... Run as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're booking it out of here. Veronica applied to the court or appealed to the court. It's, it's probably different. appealed. It's, well, no, because oh. it's different. You're right. I, this was not a typo. There was a lot of things where I had to change it because I was like, I do not like how that sounds. Mm-hmm. American version. Um, to the court to have the kids returned, but the judge set a date for the hearing three months later in June 1973. 
Veronica wanted to defend herself from John's claims about her mental state, so she booked herself a four-day stay at some clinic. They said the name, but I was like, it's unimportant. And doctors said that she was not mentally ill. When they went to trial, Mr. Justice Reese was not impressed by John's character and awarded custody to Veronica. John was allowed to see the kids every other weekend. (laughs) Backfired. (laughs) (laughs) So John was obviously not happy about this, and the two were now in a bitter dispute. He again began to watch his wife's movements. He recorded some of their telephone conversations with a small Sony tape recorder and played excerpts to any friends prepared to listen. He also told them and his bank manager that Veronica had been spending money like water. Oh, has okay. she? Is she the issue? Are you the one that doesn't just you throw it at a casino every other second? You haven't again? worked since you were like twenty-three so, because you decided gambling was more fun than having to like earn money. He hadn't worked in his whole life. No, he worked briefly at that bank. <laughs> yeah, for two seconds. Did he ever show up? They didn't tell me that. So John continued to pay her forty pounds, I almost a dollars a week, but he canceled their regular food order with Harrods. The chain. He delayed payment to the milkman, and knowing that Veronica was required by the court to employ a live-in nanny, the child care agency. So he just stopped. He's he like, here's 40 bucks, and I'm paying for absolutely and nothing that's else. Yep. So with no income of her own, Veronica took a part-time job in a local hospital. Well, good for her. Um, it's, bad. it's sad that she had to do that, but, like, she's doing what she has she's to. Doing what she has to. John got rid of the detective agency services when they gave him their bills, which were over $700. It's like seven he li- several hundred pounds. I truly, I truly think he forgets things cost stuff. He's like, been I think he doesn't everything think his whole life. anything costs money. No. He just does things. He's like, wait. He's like when celebrities go to restaurants and they bring the celebrity the bill because uh-huh. I don't care that you're rich and famous. That means you for sure have enough to pay for your meal. I watched Jerry Duty. <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. The animations. I know. Uh, so, John... Okay, John, get rid of that. So, some of the private te- detectives on John's case were close associates of Ronnie and Reggie Cray. They were both murderers and two of East London's top gangsters in the 60s and 70s. Ooh. One temporary nanny, Christabel Martin said there had been strange phone calls to the house, some with heavy breathing and some from a man asking for non-existent people. After several temporary nannies, Sandra Rivet or Rivet started work it's probably Rivet because Rivet is such an I, I, American. It just depends on where she's from. Um, London, England, England right. area. Um, and started work in late 1974. So, the court case of, you know, the custody battle had cost John around 20,000 pounds. And by late 1974, his finances were not looking great. They never, I don't think they were his whole life. (laughs) He started to drink heavily and started chain smoking. So, his friends began to worry. Ah, poor, poor, poor Lord, poor Earl. Who never worked in his whole entire life. In drunken conversations with friends and even his mother, he talked about murdering his wife. Oh. Yeah, that's a totally, you should definitely feel sorry for that man who's an absolute psycho. In a statement later given to the police, that's not even something you'd like joke about. What if we just killed my wife one day? (laughs) Joking, of course. In a statement later given to the police, 
Greville? What? Oh, gosh. Howard. Yeah, Greville Said Howard. Said how John... <laughs> the long pause because I truly I've never seen that name in my life uh said how John talked of how killing his wife might save him from bankruptcy that is not your problem no how her body might be disposed of in the solvent which I don't know what solvent he's talking about and how he quote would never be caught I need I need to know how 40 pounds a week would save this man from bankruptcy because that's all he's paying because he's just another man who literally blames everything on women any problem in my life, put it on my wife. She's done Never it all, ends. even though I've had a gambling addiction since I could gamble. Yeah. Since I Those learned what a dice was. It, yeah. A die. Sorry. A die. Smartphone too, though. Yeah, but it's not a dice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> he asked almost everyone he knew for loans at this point, and basically no one gave him any his gambling continued to be out of control, which I'm like, so you're telling me you're hearing this man tell everybody that he wants to murder his wife and he'll never he'll get away with it. And you don't trust him enough to loan him money, but you just aren't going to the police. Yeah. Interesting. You got it. His gambling continued to be out of control. It was estimated that between September and October of 1974 alone that he ran up debts Oof. of around 50,000 pounds. Oof. However, from late October 1974, friends said John's demeanor changed for the better. Red flag. They said his <laughs> obsession over regaining custody had diminished. Red flag. Why would oh, I turn around yeah, that quick? Yeah. And when asked about his family problems, he changed the subject to politics. Because he's taking care he's, of his family he's problems. and plotting in his head. Mm-hmm. Around this same time, the new nanny, Sandra, Eleanor, Rivet, Rivet. Yeah, just do Rivet. Um, had been hired. Not by him. She's employed by Miss Veronica, who's paying for it because she works at a hospital because he won't pay anything. So, she was born on September 16th, 1945, and was the third child of Albert and Eunice Hensby. She was a popular kid and was described at schools as, quote, intelligent, although she did not excel academically, which that's just rude. Uh, We aren't all meant to be in school. Okay. We're meant to learn, but the school system is not for everyone. Not everyone knows Testing how to play that Testing is stressful. She got engaged to a builder named John and got a job as a nanny for a doctor in Croydon. Oh, also, like, it went, her family had moved to Australia for, like, five years and then moved back. Hmm. But that didn't have much to do with anything. On March 13th, 1964, she had her son... Stephen, but her relationship with John was not going well, so she went to live with her parents, and her parents eventually adopted him from her in May 1965. She eventually moved in with her older sister in Portsmouth. Portsmouth? Portsmouth. Uh, don't smell it like mouth, then. Well, they always do, so. S-M-I-T-H. It's okay. I understand, O oh, doesn't make an I sound. Yeah, if it's if it's mouth at the end of a place name and it's British, it's myth. Change it. Like Monmouth. And then she met Roger Rivet Rivet. I wouldn't I don't know. And they got married on June tenth, nineteen sixty seven. I'll just keep saying it both ways because that's what I do in every story mm-hmm. we tell because then no one can get I'm just mad. Trying. I'm, I'm trying, just trying my best. so hard. <laughs> I'm trying. In did I say? On yes. June 10th, 1967, in, in Croydon. 
Their marriage, their marriage fell apart in May of 1974, and a few weeks later, she was hired to be the new nanny for Veronica. So, Sandra normally went out with her boyfriend, John. See, another John. Like, Because her first, the guy she got engaged, yeah. she was also John. Okay, so. Uh, John Hankins? On Thursday nights, but had changed her, her had changed her night off and had seen him the previous day of this week. The two last talked on the phone around 8 p.m. on November 7th. After putting the younger kids to bed at around 8.55 p.m., she asked Veronica if she would like a cup of tea. Um, I'm pretty sure Veronica agreed to that, and so Sandra headed downstairs to the basement kitchen to make one. As she entered the room, Sandra was bludgeoned to death with a a piece of bandaged lead pipe. Her killer then placed her body into a canvas mailbag. Veronica wondered what had happened to Sandra because she had not come back upstairs, so she went to check on her. She called for her from the top of the stairs, and she too was attacked. She screamed for her life, and the attacker told her to, quote, shut up. Probably more British and uh, rude. Um, so Veronica, her menacing, shall I say, mm-hmm. Veronica later claimed at that moment she recognized her husband's voice. The two continued to fight. She bit his fingers, and when he threw her down to the carpet, she managed to turn around and injure him, which caused him to release the grip on her throat and give up the fight. When she asked where Sandra was, John didn't want to answer at first, but eventually admitted to killing her. Veronica was terrified, but told him that she could help him escape if he would stay at the house for a few days to allow her injuries to heal. John walked upstairs and sent his daughter to bed and then went into one of the bedrooms. What a weird, weird situation that Veronica is Veronica went into the room to lie on the bed and he told her to put towels down first to avoid staining the bedding. He then asked her if she had any barbiturates and went into the bathroom to get a wet towel, supposedly to clean Veronica's face. Veronica realized John would not be able to hear her from the bathroom, and she made her escape. She ran outside to a nearby public house, the plumber's arms. So, like, she's telling him what he wants to hear so she can escape. As, like, she because knows, she knows well. he's yeah. going to kill her if she stays. To both be able to manipulate him and know yeah. what's coming one way or the other. So, yeah. after this, it is thought that John went to Madeleine... Madeleine? Madeleine? Yeah. Flo- Florman's house. She was a mother of one of Francis's school friends, one of their daughters, um, between 10 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. Madeleine heard someone at the door but was home alone and didn't answer it. Shortly after this, her phone rang and it was an incoherent call, so she put the receiver down. Bloodstains, which were found to be a mixture of blood groups A and B, were later discovered on her doorstep. John also called his mom between 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. and asked her to pick up the kids from Lower Belgrave Street. She said he spoke of a, quote, terrible catastrophe at his wife's house. He told her that he had been driving past the house when when he saw Veronica fighting with a man in the basement. He had entered the house and found his wife screaming. Police forced their way into Veronica's house and discovered Sandra's body before Veronica was taken by ambulance to St. George's Hospital. John drove the Ford Corsair 42 miles to Uckfield, East Sussex, to visit his friends. Because that's what you do after you've witnessed, what did he say, a quote, terrible catastrophe. Well, no, because he's claiming there's been a a terrible catastrophe. But he also isn't saying he didn't do it. So, but, you know, 
um, the friends were the Maxwell Scotts. Uh-huh. Maxwell. Did I say that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Susan Maxwell Scott was the last person to have seen him. He said Maxwell Scott. Scott's <laughs> originally like it was somebody we were supposed to know. On November 6th, he met his uncle John Bevan. Apparently in good spirits. This is uh, going back in time. By, what, a day? Because I think this incident happened on the 7th, yeah. Apparently in good spirits. Spirits? What? What am I saying? Later that day, he met 21-year-old Charlotte... Andrina. Ick. Calhoun. <laughs> I was going to say Colcohan. <laughs> What is our cue? Calhoun. Calhoun. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can't pronounce things. Okay, so uh, she said that he, quote, seemed very happy, just his usual self, and there was nothing to suggest that he was worried or depressed. Yeah, because he thinks well, cause he's he wasn't a, worried he's or a mastermind. He also dined at the Claremont with racing driver Graham Hill. Casinos could be open between two p.m. could only be open between two p.m. and four a.m. So John normally gambled in the early hours of the morning. He took pills to deal with his insomnia and usually woke up around lunchtime. That's he's a real winner. <laughs> On November seventh, though, he broke routine and called his solicitor early in the morning. And at eleven thirty a.m., took a call from please say it Calhoun. They arranged to eat at the Claremont at around 3 p.m., but John failed to appear. Calhoun drove past the Claremont and Ladbrook Clubs. I'm so tired of these names. And past Elizabeth Street, but could not find John's car anywhere. John also did not show up for his 1 p.m. lunch appointment with artist Dominic Elms and banker... Oh, Jesus Christ. Daniel... Men in her tagging? Jesus. <laughs> what is that? Men in tagging? Okay. Again at the Claremont. Which I'm sure He's I'm saying not, the Claremont wrong too. But I, if you are, that's, that's with on the somebody else. At this that's point. someone else's fault. So, <laughs> at 4 p.m., John went to a chemist's. Which is another British thing. Everybody. We don't know what it is. Pharmacist. It is a pharmacy. <laughs> Walgreens. He went to Walgreens. On Lower Belgrave Street, close to Veronica's home, and asked the pharmacist there to identify a small pill. It turned out to be... Barbiturates. Limbertol 5. Which was, I don't know, a drug for the treatment of anxiety and depression. Barbiturates? I don't know what barbiturates... So, John had apparently made several similar visits since he separated from his wife. Uh, he never told the pharmacist where he got the drugs, but I guess would frequently go into a pharmacist and be like, what's this? What is this one? Trying to, like, I guess prove that she was unfit and, like, a drug addict. But I'm like, have you taken a look at the mirror? <laughs> you have to take what to help you sleep until uh-huh. afternoon? Because okay. you, you're staying up at, to, like, crazy hours to defeat your gambling addiction. At 4.45 p.m., he called a friend, literary agent, Michael Hicks Beach, and between 6.30 p.m. and 7 p.m., met with him at his flat on Elizabeth Street. 
John wanted his help with an article on gambling he had been asked to write for an Oxford University magazine. John drove Hicks Beach home at about 8 p.m., not in his Mercedes, which was his usual car, but in, quote, an old, dark, and scruffy Ford. Possibly a Ford Corsair he had borrowed from Michael Stoop several weeks earlier. I love the description of the car. It's scruffy. I know. <laughs> At 8.30 p.m., he called the Claremont to check on a reservation for dinner with... His name Your favorite girl. Revel Howard and friends. Howard had called him about 5.15 p.m. and asked if he wished to come to the theater. But John had declined and made the alternative suggestion to meet at the Claremont at 11 p.m. He failed to arrive and did not answer his phone when called. Talkie. Mm-hmm. Theodora Copulus. Yeah. Who said he was one of John's close friends for more than a decade, had lent him around 3,000 pounds in cash three nights before the murder. dun dun, dun. So here we're on to the investigation. By the time Roy Ransom, when I was first typing this out, it autocorrected to Ransom. And I was like, what a cool name for a detective, Roy Ransom. (laughs) Had arrived at the scene early on November 8th. Sandra had been pronounced dead. Other Other than the front door, which the first two officers had kicked in, there was no signs of forced entry. A bloodstained towel was found in Veronica's first floor bedroom. Uh, the area around the top of the basement stairs had lots of blood. There was also a bloodstained lead pipe on the floor. Um, and pictures on the staircase walls were askew. And a metal banister rail was damaged. I keep reminding myself that this is like decently recent murder history not like i know because to me it sounds so old it's not the 1970s or the 1870s is the 1970s like it's a hundred years after when i keep thinking it's happening well when i kept doing the research i was like man this is this is certainly old-timey but no it's just british people (laughs) which makes it seem old-timey um at the foot of the stairs two cups and saucers were laying in a pool of blood oh tea that's why i said i assume veronica said she wanted some yeah Sandra's arm was sticking out of the canvas bag, which was also laying in a pool of blood. They also said it was a growing pool of blood, but then she still would have been alive because your heart stops pumping out blood when you're dead. So I didn't put that in because that's incorrect and an uneducated thing to write down. (laughs) Or even better, she was not dead. They did a really bad job at something. Yeah, so, because, like, it could seep a tiny bit, but they're making it seem like she's still pumping out Mm -hmm. gallons, and that's just not the case. So the light at the bottom of the stairs was missing its bulb, and one one light bulb was noted as being on a nearby chair. Blood was also found on many leaves in the adjoining back garden. Officers also reached 5 Eaton Row, where John was living. Which, didn't he live at Elizabeth Street or something? He's, I think he... He He's leaving back to row at place. some point. Well, he, his family also has like a bunch of different houses, so if there's going to be a lot of yeah. houses mentioned later in this, that so we're all just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, where John was living and didn't find anything strange, his wallet, car keys, money, driver's license, handkerchief, and spectacles were all on a bedside table. His passport was in a drawer, and his Mercedes was parked outside. They also said that it was like cool. It wasn't like just had been running. Oh, and like, which and like, like we just well, yeah, said that he he's knows driving he's the another Ford. car. At, so out in the country. that's why I didn't put it in because I was like, yeah. 
he wasn't driving. We already know that. So Roy Ranson, sorry if I'm saying it wrong, then went to visit Veronica at the hospital. She was heavily sedated but was able to describe what happened to her. An officer was left to guard her in case the attacker came back, which, good. <laughs> Sandra's body was taken to the mortuary and a search started on all local basement areas and gardens, skips, and open spaces for, like, I guess, a crazed killer mm-hmm. covered in blood. So uh, the pathologist Keith, Keith, I have, like, a lisp today or something, Simpson, Keith. told Ranson that she had been placed in the bag after she was already dead and that the lead pipe could have been the murder weapon. Her estranged husband, Roger, <clears throat> had an alibi for that night, and other male friends and boyfriends were also questioned but discounted as suspects. Sandra's parents said she had a good working relationship with Veronica and was extremely fond of the kids. By this point, John was still nowhere to be found, so his description was circulated to police forces across the country. Newspapers and television stations were told that John was wanted by the police for questioning. They weren't said, like, he's our main mm-hmm. murder suspect, but... Hours before this, he had called his mom again around 12.30 a.m. and told her that he would be in touch with her later that day, but said he would not speak with the police constable who was with her in her apartment. He said he would call police later that morning. Mm-hmm. Ranson found that John had traveled to Uckfield when he was called by Ian Maxwell Scott who told him that John had arrived at his home a few hours after the murder and spoke with his wife, Susan. While there, John had written two letters to his brother-in-law, Bill Shan Kidd, and posted them to his London address. Maxwell Scott also called Shan Kidd at his country house near Leighton Buzzard and told him about the letters, basically telling Bill to get to London to collect them. And mm-hmm. after reading them noted that they were bloodstained, so he took them to Branson. One letter read, quote, Dear Bill, the ghastly circumstances arose tonight, which I briefly described to my mother. When I interrupted the fight at Lower Belgrave Street, man, the man left. Veronica accused me of having hired him. I took her upstairs and sent Francis up to bed and tried to clean her up. She lay doggo for a bit, and when I was in the bathroom, left the house. Mm-hmm. The circumstantial evidence against me is strong, and that V will st- will say it was all my doing. I will also lie doggo for a bit, but I am only concerned for the children. If you can manage it, I want them to live with you. So, Coots, who's the trustees of his accounts, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. um, St. Martin's Lane will handle school fees. V has demonstrated her hatred for me in the past and would do anything to see me accused. For George and Francis to go through life knowing their father had stood in the dock for attempted murder would be too much. When they are old enough to understand, explain to them the dream of paranoia and look after them. Yours ever, John. He did. It's not attempted murder. Dated November 7th, 1974. (laughs) No, he's still claiming that he saw a random man attacking oh, her right. in her house, and he came into the house and saved her. I keep forgetting that's what the story he's telling right now to everybody. So the other part read, financial matters. Quote, there is a sale coming up at Christie's 27 November, which will satisfy bank overdrafts. Please agree reserves with Tom Craig. Proceeds go to Lloyd's Six Pal Mall, Couts, 59 Strand, NatWest Blooms, Bloomsbury branch, <laughs> who also hold an 
what account or equity and law life policy the other creditors can get lost for the time being lucky his nickname so police asked susan why she didn't let police know sooner that john had been there and she said that she didn't see any news on this case so she didn't really know what was going on he he just popped by for a visit he wasn't covered in blood and asking me where to go the kids were taken by their aunt to her house where they stayed for several weeks when veronica left the hospital a high court hearing said the kids could return home with her which the aunt was uh, Veronica's sister, Christina, I, or whatever her name is. I mean, like, maybe it's too early to say this, but at least he didn't just go attack the children once, like, Well, his Veronica remember his was. whole thing whenever, whenever their relationship is failing is he just wants the kids. He doesn't care what happens with Yeah, her. but sometimes there can be, like, a family annihilation thing happening. He'll just well, take I, them all out so no one can have them kind well, of thing. Well, obviously, in this situation, I don't think this man meant to kill the nanny. He was in the dark basement. No, I think he was hoping it was Veronica It was her by down. accident. Uh-huh. He thought he killed Veronica. He didn't. Then he goes upstairs. He's tired because he just bludgeoned another woman to death. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have enough energy to kill Veronica. He's like, I guess I'll wait it out. I'll, I'll get my energy back up and we'll just pretend to play nice. And mm-hmm. he's planning to kill her while he's in the bathroom mm-hmm. getting stuff for her. She runs out because she's smarter than he is. He's like, oh, gots to go. That was my plan anyways, to kill her and leave. Mm-hmm. Which I'm like, so your thing is just, well, she doesn't get to have the kids. Because I never understand that. That's always like the men's plan. Is they're like, well, if they can't, if I can't have the kids, then I'll kill my wife. Okay, so then and what then, happens when you get convicted for murder? They no don't, have, has, a, they don't a have a parent. parents. They're basically orphans. So anyway, that's obviously what his plan was. Yeah. The funniest thing is that the majority of the articles I looked at, not a single one said that's what happened. <laughs> I'm like, that's the only <laughs> that's, thing that makes sense. But that's what's happening. Uh, and it's not an uncommon thing uh, to happen. And it's like, maybe he didn't plan on running away at first. Maybe he planned to set it up to make it look like somebody random had broken in and mm-hmm. killed Veronica, and mm-hmm. then he was going to take the kids. And after he realized he screwed up, he could have even had this backup plan in case anything went wrong to begin with of running away and never being mm-hmm. found again. But anyway, so... Sorry, I'm just, you know, your regular detective. <sighs> the Ford Corsair, which I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it, it. that John had been seen driving and whose details had been circulated across the country was found on november 10th on norma road new haven about 16 miles from uckfield and the trunk which they said in the boot get rid of that that's not a shoe (laughs) was a piece of lead pipe covered in surgical tape basically just like the one that was at the Uh house covered in blood and a full bottle of vodka probably his expensive russian vodka the car was taken for forensics, which I, I didn't even see that say them mention what the brand is, but they even mentioned earlier in this article that he was a fancy Russian vodka. So the car was taken for forensic ex- examination. Um, later statements from two witnesses suggest that it was parked there sometime between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. on the morning of November 8th. Its owner, Michael Stoop, also received a letter from John delivered to his club at St. James's. Stoop threw the envelope away so it was not possible to check its postmark to see where it was sent from. The letter said, quote, My dear Michael, I have had a traumatic night of unbelievable coincidence. However, I won't bore you with anything or involve you except to say that when you come across my children, which I hope you will, please tell them that they knew me, that you knew me, and that I cared about them. I cared about... Was that? 
That's and key. all I cared about was them. Okay, I can't read. <laughs> the fact that crooked solicitor and a rotten psychiatrist destroyed me between them will be of no importance to the children. I gave Bill Shand Kid an account of what actually happened by... But judging by my last effort in court, no one, let alone a 67-year-old judge, would believe. And I no longer care except that my children should be protected. Yours ever, John. Like, he's never declaring his innocence. Nope. He's not like, I swear to God I had nothing to do with this, but I know it looks like a setup, so I have to go. And then he says, I hate everybody. Nobody believes anything I say ever. I was given everything my whole life, and the judge didn't like my attitude, so he didn't give me my kids. He said I'm being a crazy person trying to claim that their mother's mentally unstable. Anyway. <laughs> there's, I, I wish, I mean, if I did more research, I'm sure there's like a psychiatrist that did a profile on Boy, his bet. crazy bottom. So, <laughs> Ransom suspected uh, a suicide, but a thorough search of New Haven Downs was judged impossible. Which, like, if you're killing yourself, that's not the only place you're going to kill yourself, but okay. So, they assume you jumped off a cliff, is what you're saying? I guess. A partial search was made using tracker dogs, but they only found the skeletal remains of a judge who had disappeared years earlier. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> that's absolutely <laughs> hilarious, actually. We actually found the skeletal remains. It's a really important person. We did find another case. Time, but... We did find another open missing person's case. So police divers searched the harbor, and a partial search using infrared photography was undertaken the following year, but they also found nothing. Well, the first search found nothing, but they really acted like nobody cared. That they found this missing judge. Man's body. Um, A warrant for John's arrest was issued on November 12th for the murder of Sandra Rivet and attempted murder of his wife, Veronica. The descriptions of his appearance already issued to police across police forces across the UK were issued to Interpol. An examination of the lead pipe found in the house um, found blood from Veronica, blood group A, and blood from Sandra, blood group B. Hair belonging to Veronica was also found on the pipe. Scientists were not able to prove that the pipe found in the car had been in the house and in the house were cut from the same longer piece of piping, but they thought it was likely, which I'm like, come on, get it together. But forensic files, most of their episodes are in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tape, I mean, there's some here, but not a lot. Tape was wrapped around both, which was similar, but they could not link it, you know, for sure. The letters written to Kid had blood from Veronica and Sandra on it, and the letter to Stoop did not have blood on it, but it was proven that it was torn from a writing pad found in the Ford's trunk. So it's still linking Mm -hmm. directly to John. It was confirmed that Sandra was killed in the basement kitchen, and Veronica was attacked at the top of the stairs um, by the Mm bloodstains in the house. Bloodstains found in the Ford were also of AB blood group, um, and it was thought that it was a mixture of the women's blood. Hair similar to Veronica's was also found in the car, which she had, like, platinumish blonde hair. And I'm pretty sure that Sandra had dark brown hair. Mm-hmm. Um, so, really, none of John's social circle wanted to work with the police. Shocker. For whatever rich person reasons that they had or, you know, preserving themselves. Susan uh, was the last person to see him, and she refused to give her statement for... I'm just assuming, like, the beginning of it, because she ends up testifying in court, so I don't know why she changed her mind. Or she just needed enough time to make up her fake story. 
Um, they asked the mom of one of his friends. They said the name, but I'm like, I have not seen this name in the whole article, so I'm not including it. Adding another um, person. Yeah, if she could locate John's body, and she said, quote, the last I heard of him, he was being fed to the tigers at my son's zoo. So police, son's zoo? So police searched the kind house of rich and she? cages, along with 14 other country houses and estates, and found nothing. So that tells you 14 other country houses and estates, Sadie. Oh, um, one of John's friends went to visit Veronica in the hospital, and his name is down here later, and I'll probably bring it up again. Um... And was reportedly deeply shocked both by her appearance and her statement, quote, who's the mad one now? So all of his children, John's, by the way, who are now adults, obviously, Francis, who is a corporate lawyer, George, who is or was a financial consultant, and Camilla, a QC, which I don't know what that is, um, have never acknowledged or accepted his alleged culpability and maintain that their father was never given a chance at a fair trial. Well, yeah, because he ran away because he was guilty. That's what happens when you're guilty. You're all adults and you're lawyers and you're going to tell me that you don't think your father killed this woman or paid somebody to kill this woman and then left because either way he would still be uh, liable for her murder. Mm-hmm. This is probably honestly due because the children became wards of the court when they were in their teens because mm-hmm. Veronica's like mental health declined after this, which uh, is reasonable. Absolutely, her husband who but at this assaulted point, her so made. brutally. She's in the hospital for weeks on end, mm-hmm. and then he runs away and is never found. And so she's scared for the rest of her life that he could show up at any time. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Why but, but mental for the health declined? Words of the court are just saying, "See, Dad was." Right. But they went to live with their aunt, mm-hmm. the rich aunt who married the Diana cousin. So, oh, you had such a bad life. If I had to hear about one more rich person, their parent issues, <laughs> don't even get me started. So the kids and the aunt uh, that took them in never had a great relationship with Veronica after this, which, like, maybe she was a terrible mom. I don't know. But also, like, do you not see what she went through? She told other but, nannies yeah. he's been abusive the whole time. Mm-hmm. Don't be surprised if he kills me one day. Mm-hmm. And the kids are like, my daddy would never... Ever. Just don't even get me started because there's more about these kids. I think they need some And the part of these kids is what makes my blood boil. (laughs) So, within days of the murder, newspapers reported on Veronica's statement to the police with claims that she had pretended to collude with her husband to ensure her safety. Which, I don't know why they said claims because... That really, she, truly she, seems she like what that. happened. So, in January of 1975, she gave an exclusive interview to the Daily Express, and she appeared in a murder reconstruction in the same newspaper with posed photos taken inside the house, which is very strange hmm. to me. But if she's not, like, if this is, like, the tipping point of her mental health, oh, like, you know, okay, we all do some weird things. During the inquest, Sally Blower, Blower, the detective constable who had taken Francis' statement, which is the one of the daughters, on November 20th, 1974, read her words to the court. Francis had heard a scream and a few minutes later had watched as her mother, with blood on her face, and father had entered the room. Her mother had sent her up to bed, or to bed. Uh, she later heard her father calling for her mother, asking where she was, and watched as he left the bathroom and walked downstairs. She also described how Sandra did not normally work on Thursday nights. The landlord of Plumber's Arms Pub described how Veronica had entered the bar, quote, covered head to toe in blood. 
um, before she fell into a state of shock. He said she shouted, help me, help me. I've just escaped from being murdered. And my children, my children, he's murdered my nanny. The pathologist Keith Simps... Keith... I keep saying Keith. <coughs> Keith Sim... No, not the lisp. Keith Simpson confirmed that the lead, pl- lead pipe at the scene was most likely responsible for Sandra's injuries, some to the left eye and mouth. He thought uh, that those to the left eye and mouth had more had likely been caused by punches from a clenched fist. Which I'm like, that has got to be the husband because he's taking out his full-on rage on her after. I'm assuming he hits her with the lead pipe first. He could have punched her first and done that and then bludgeoned her to death. But I'm like, you're telling me this is like a very passionate murder. Mm -hmm. And you don't think it's the husband who accidentally mistaked Sandra for Veronica when he's in a dark basement? You know. It's just like, anyway... So Susan, the last person to see John, told the court he looked, quote, disheveled and his hair a little ruffled. His pants had a damp, <clears throat> a damp patch on, on the right hip, and John had told her that he was walking or passing by the lower Belgrave Street residence when he saw Veronica being attacked by a man. He let himself in but slipped in a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs. He told her that the attacker ran off and that Veronica was, quote, very hysterical and accused him of having hired a hitman to kill her. Which, first of all, stories contradicting. You said you were driving by when you saw her getting attacked in the basement. Mm-hmm. Now you're walking past the street? Hmm. Interesting. Which I'm like, how dumb are his kids? His stories can't be straight, but they're like, no, the media made that up. Okay, whatever. Whatever. At 11.45 a.m., the foreman my, my announced... My thing is, is if, if you are guilty, why are you gone forever? Why do you even why are you running away? run away? Yeah. And even if he wasn't the one who actually did, committed the murder, mm-hmm. he hired someone. Like, there's no doubt it was either him or somebody he hired. There's no other kind of uh, framing that could have happened here, I do not believe. So, at 11.45, the foreman announced... Quote, murder by Lord Lucan. Woohoo, party, party. So John had now become the first member of the House of Lords to be named a murderer since 1760. When Lawrence Shirley, 4th Earl Ferris, was hanged for killing his bailiff. Which, what is that? What? Somebody on his court? A bailiff? The bailiff? In 1760. I don't know what a bailiff would have been in 1760. Because I saw that and I was like, I don't know what that is. But I'm doing so much research right now, I do not feel like doing it. He was also the last person to be committed by a coroner of to the Crown Court for unlawful killing. The coroner's power to do so was removed by the Criminal Law Act in 1977. Which I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Sandra's body was released to her family after being held for several weeks after the murder and was cremated on December 18th, 1974. Of course, basically all of John's uh, friends and family were on his side and said it was a one-sided view of events. Yeah, where's your little friend at? He can tell his side if he comes mm-hmm. back. And we put him in a jail cell for the rest of his life. Oh, you know, a bailiff, like a bailiwick, <laughs> Audrey. Like a what? <laughs> a bailiwick. <laughs> Is that a candy? <laughs> yeah, this person's a candy. I'm sorry, I was just trying to figure out what an old-timey bailiff was. They're like, yeah, you know, bailiffs, like bailiwicks. And I'm like, no. What? Um, but it's just, it looks like sort of like a property manager. Okay. 
<clears throat> anyway. We learn something new every day. A bailiwick. <laughs> Veronica's sister even said she felt, quote, great sadness and sorrow at the verdict. So, don't trust Christina. Susan kept claiming he was innocent and claimed to feel, quote, awfully sorry for Veronica. We don't want your pity, Susan. <laughs> also, I find it strange that Susan just comes up so much in everything. John still had not resurfaced, and and although his fingerprints weren't found at the scene, there isn't a great explanation for why he had a lead pipe in his car. No. And the fact that he had discussed multiple times with multiple people that he wanted to kill his wife. Um, there was also a lack of, you know, a suspect for the man who he claimed to have seen fighting Veronica. Nobody had seen some burglar-looking man running through the neighborhood. Like, yeah. this is just not adding up. So, um, there was also no sign of forced entry. Uh, that's not helping his okay. case, because he more than likely has keys and knows the ins and outs, because he mm-hmm. lived there. And um, this is the kicker for me. I love this part. And when officers attempted to demonstrate that John could have seen into the basement kitchen from the street, or in his car, like he had claimed... They found that you can only see into it by stooping low to the pavement. That was my thought originally when you said that. I, I know. Like, I'm like, how do you see into a basement? Um, and the light in the basement, which had not been working, which, you know, the light bulbs on the chair in the corner, uh, made it especially hard to see into the basement. Now, here's my At theory. Night. If he is somehow possibly actually innocent and there truly was someone in the house attacking them, he was just doing his standard spying. I was going to say. Because he's no longer the paying. The only other excuse is that he's still being a total creepo he's, he's and trying to prove that she's an unfit mother but he and he should still be arrested that he's for that. being a stalker. Exactly. Um, which, the only, anyway, the only he still should have been in prison for something. And now he's running away like he's a guilty person, so... He obviously did I something still, yeah, wrong. Yeah, you wouldn't run away because you're stalking, though. Veronica also said that she had not gone into the basement that night, which contradicts John's story, saying that he saw her being attacked in the basement, and the mm-hmm. blood evidence shows that she wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and Veronica's account was proven to be true after the examination of the house. All of her big blood is upstairs. All of Sandra's big blood piles are down there. Mm-hmm. Um. Hello? So, the man John claimed to see could not have left through the basement door because it was locked. Mm-hmm. And the back, like, still locked by the time yeah. they were there. And the back door led to a walled garden, and there was no evidence of anybody trying to escape, like, climbing over and the Based on the blood the that they're finding everywhere yes. else, there should be blood in the garden if they're escaping. Uh, no witnesses ever reported seeing the strange man, like I said. Um, and the national press basically all said that he was guilty and their lead writers ignored the threat of, what is that, libel? What is this? What is this word? It's, it's, it's probably like a defamation. Is what um, and identified him as Sandra's killer, which go press. <laughs> they said he did it. Because that's literally the only thing that makes sense. How much more is there? Audrey. Not too much. Not too much. Not too much. <laughs> In August of 1975, John's creditors were told that he had debts of 75,000 pounds and preferential preferential liabilities for 1,326 pounds. His assets were estimated at around 22,632 pounds. His family was granted probate over his estate in 1999, but no death certificate was issued, and his heir, 
George Bingham, don't get me started on this man, was refused permission to take his father's title because, like, why would you even want that at this point? People You're love, terrible. They You're love, a terrible human They covet being. the titles. Disgusting. Um, he was refused it. And his seat in the House of Lords. He tried a new attempt to have his father declared dead, which was successful in a high court hearing at the Rolls Building on February 3rd, 2016, and was able to inherit his father's titles, becoming the eighth Earl of Lucan. He said, quote, I am very happy with the judgment of the court in this matter. It has been a very long time coming. You have nothing else going on in your life besides inheriting your murderer father's title. That name, and, here's and the, then this is the case. This makes me bomb. You could Listen have this. legally changed your name if you really just needed to say that that bad. I understand titles come with other things, but still. <clears throat> Listen to this part. His wife. And Sophie said, quote, It was important to George, not only because of his birthright, but because he feels a sense of responsibility for what comes with it. It was important what for closure. Comes with it? This is, I got to this end of it, because at first I'm like, okay, you know, this is just rich person stuff, I get it. But now it, you have birthed the most horrific people. Who literally just, only care about getting a title and a seat in the house of the lords or whatever. You really only think about yourself about from the time, like, time until 2016 when he's probably in his 40s or 50s at this point. I don't remember when he was born, but... He's 67. This part, I was just like... And then it gets worse because there's another... There's more of these two horrific individuals <laughs> in here. So, aftermath. So, the last confirmed sighting of John was around 1.15 a.m. on November 8th, 1974, as he left the driveway of the Maxwell Scott property in Stoops Ford Corsair, and his fate remains a a mystery to this day. Branson initially claimed that John had, quote, done the honorable thing and, quote, fallen on his own sword, which the honorable thing is turning yourself in and going to prison for the rest of your life. Yep. Which many of his friends agree with, and apparently so did Veronica. No, Yes, yes. Getting away with it with no consequences for that poor nanny. Absolutely. Like, so Ranson did later change his view and consider that it uh, that it was more likely John had run away and was possibly li- living in Southern Africa, which I don't know where are you getting that from, but that's where everybody goes briefly when you have a title. You go <laughs> briefly to South Africa when you're having so, problems. So, a detective who led a new investigation into John's disappearance 32 years after the murder told the Telegraph that quote the evidence points towards the fact that Lord Lucan left the country and lived abroad for a number of years um susan told author john pearson here's susan again john pearson that john see another john um that the john of this story might have helped might have been helped out of the country by shadowy underground financers before being judged too great of a risk killed and buried in switzerland Which, why is he being helped out if he's not guilty, Susan? Buried in Switzerland. What does he need help with if he's not guilty, Susan? What do you know, Susan? She knows. It's the same thing everybody here. They all You have to know that when he went into all, talked to all those friends, he said what he did. So, since his disappearance, uh, there have been thousands of sightings reported around the world. One of the earliest happened shortly after the murder, but it turned out to be a British politician, John Stonehouse, who had attempted to fake his own death. Which I love. <laughs> We found the body of this judge. We've now found this man who's attempting to fake his own death. 
This is so funny. Um, the police we traveled... found two people. Yes. <laughs> Solved two mysteries. Yes. So the police traveled to France in June that following year to hunt another lead, which didn't turn anything up. A sighting in Colombo turned out to be an American businessman. John Miller, a bounty hunter who once kidnapped fugitive train robber Ronnie Biggs, claimed to have captured John in 18, or 19, Is it? 18, Hold on, how do you kidnap a fugitive? I don't know, but I was thinking <laughs> of one of us looking into that because that's so interesting. Another John. Uh, um, anyway. He said that he had captured John in 1982, but was later exposed by the News of the World as a hoax. In 2003, a former Scotland Yard detective thought he had tracked John down in... Sound it out. Goy? Yeah. India? But the man turned out to be Barry Halpin, a folk singer... <laughs> from Maryside? Mercy. Merseyside. It's late. <laughs> in 2007, reporters in New Zealand interviewed a homeless British expat who neighbors claimed was John. Don't, um, they didn't say it wasn't him, but That's it. they also didn't confirm it was. So, George, the this son. terrible individual, was quoted saying, quote, I get a little tired when former Scotland Yard detectives at the end of their careers get commissions to write books which happen to send them to a sunny destination around the world. What a bitter I get bitter tired man. of people who keep getting born into money, and I don't. <laughs> so keep your mouth shut. How dare they after like, they've I done, like, years and like, years of service, and what is not necessarily an How dare job. he do public service and, you know, keep and then the public safe. Get a mild and reward. And get to have of. a nice life when he's finally retired at the age of 65. Yeah. But I had to fight tooth and nail for my lordship, and I didn't get in until I was 49 years of age. <laughs> Are you actually kidding me? That's why I'm saying I got to the end of this research and that's when my blood boiled. It's finding these horrific family members. He's not even a child. No, he's not. He's a full adult. But he's so. certainly acting like one. Well, like, he's acting like a spoiled brat. You like get to benefit off of my murderer daddy? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't get his title until I was 49. Yeah. Okay, get over yourself. <clears throat> Veronica dismissed the newspaper claims of sightings as, quote, nonsense, saying her husband, quote, was not the sort of Englishman to cope abroad, <laughs> which I thought was funny. She died by suicide on Aww. September 26, 2017, believing she was undiagnosed. She had undiagnosed Parkinson's disease. In 2020, a sighting was reported in Australia. A pensioner living in suburban Brisbane was alleged to be John by Professor Hassan Gale, um, a leading computer scientist. He claimed state-of-the-art facial recognition technology had positively, positively identified the elderly man as John. The man who lives in what is described as a Buddhist commune in Brisbane's outer suburbs was found by Sandra's son, Neil Berryman, which I'm assuming his name got changed after uh, her parents adopted him or something yeah. because his name was uh, Stephen, I'm pretty sure. Or Wikipedia got it mm -hmm. wrong or whatever article I got the name from. So the, the man is the same age as John. Mm-hmm. Um, he has denied being Lord Lucan, which, why would, why would you is, say you are? And line. there has been no substantial proof provided that he is or has any link to John, apparently. 
Um, Gail was contacted by the Guardian, and he said, quote, I can't 100% confirm it's Lord Lucan. It looks remarkably like him. It's worth investigating further. A Silicon Valley firm has also uh, produced similar results to those of Gale. So, like, normally this kind of technology isn't wrong, for the well, most part. I, it does. The only thing that I'll give anybody the benefit of doubt for <clears> is the concept <throat> that there's, like, just eight people in the world who look like mm-hmm. you. And I don't know if that's proven or if it's an old wives' tale. But just, like, there's only so much genetic variation. Yeah. It's totally possible that there are two people. Like, think about how many people in Hollywood look the same. Like, freaky well, the, the same. plastic surgery. No, no, no. But just, like, from when they're young, even. But like, like, but there's at least one person who looks like to, you somewhere in the world. Um, age the exact same as someone. That's would. really true. That's, so that is true. The Metropolitan Police said it had been made aware in December 2020 of information relating to an Australian citizen in connection to the case. Quote: In April 2021, following extensive inquiries and investigations made by the Australian Federal Police on behalf of the Metropolitan Police, the person was conclusively eliminated from the investigation. Which I'm like, did you test DNA? Did you do anything actually besides him saying, I am not Lord Lucan? Mm -hmm. What are you talking about? (laughs) So the Met carried out a cold case review in 2004 without receiving a conclusion as to what had happened to John. The inquiry into Sandra's death remains open and any significant new information will be considered. On the 48th anniversary of the murder, the Daily Mail reported, quote, cryptic new clues... And the Lord Lucan mystery can be unveiled in the form of Cluedo cards found by detectives at the time Colonel Mustard, the lead pipe, and the hall. <laughs> Almost 50 years after his family's nanny was found bludgeoned to death by a lead pipe, it can be revealed that these three cards from the aristocrats' board game were discovered in his abandoned car. The trio of Cluedo cards appears to chillingly represent the grisly killing of Sandra Rivet Rivet, prompting the question of whether her death was planned. And the the thing about this is, I didn't see this until literally I'm making dinner tonight. Like I said, I had started this research yesterday in the morning, did not finish it until dinner today. And Drew had come downstairs and he was like, so he saw like the title and he was like, okay, so describe this to me. And I was like saying what had happened. I was like, he bludgeoned her to death with a lead pipe. And I was like, like real life clue. And then I'm getting to this research. I was like, oh my God, like what the well, it's heck? Not, it doesn't mean that Sandra's death was necessarily planned. No, I still think this is proving that, that he's going to kill Veronica. Like I he, said, I don't think he wanted to kill. was to go kill yeah. someone with a lead pipe. So most likely Veronica. <laughs> yeah. So Garth Gibbs, when talking of his career and not finding John, he was a journalist who I'm assuming did a mm-hmm. lot of articles of people who were looking for him, said, quote, as that brilliantly bigoted and crusty old column columnist, another John, John Jr. John oh. Jr. One cannily observed, quote, Laddie, you don't ever want to shoot the fox. Once the fox is dead, there is nothing left to chase. Which I'm like, okay, so do these journalists know where he was and just keep making stuff up? Do people, like, who who knows where he's at right now? Someone has to. That's suspicious to say. Yeah, that is really weird. Um, so Neil said, quote, Neil is um, Sandra's son. Mm-hmm. Quote, I've spoken with George Bingham, Lucan's son, and now, of course, the new Lord Lucan. We remain in contact and respect each other's differing views of his father's vanishing act back in 1974, which 
good for you because I would not respect him at all. The new Lord Lucan is ironically now trying to drill for oil not far from the spot where his father was last seen that fateful night back in November 1974. Yeah, that's a really good responsibility to keep up with. So... George's wife, Anne Sophie, or Anna Sophie, I don't know how you say that. It's Anne Sophie, it's hyphenated, that's why she's so angry every time she says it. Said, quote, <laughs> it was a dark time for my husband. He lost his father, mother, and nanny. But it's time for everybody to move on. It's a new era, says the Danish heiress. Also worth noting, um, they also have a nanny, which, if I was you, girl run or man you could be a man sure even worse the couple started a business venture called lucan it's quote a proudly british collection of stylish multi-purpose outdoor wear for men and women designed for the field and more but equally at home in the city i can't that's what responsibility that's what responsibility comes with the titles he's been waiting to get his hands on since he wanted to use it for branding he wanted to use it for branding like, you're telling me, people think these, I just, I can't stand Keep rich going. British people. On the website set up by Sandra's son, Neil, he says, quote, My mission is to keep my mother's memory very much alive and to seek justice. She is not just the nanny. She is a victim of violent crime who became secondary because her killer was a lord, a lord who was protected and who vanished abroad with the aid of his rich and powerful friends rather than face justice. Now you understand my motivation and what drives me. I hope you find the work we have been doing for over the last 10 years of interest. Since starting this site, I've discovered how still, despite the passing of nearly half a century, people from around the world are willing to get in touch and help. Those who have continued to do so, my sincere thanks. But I leave you to navigate your way through some of the evidence and documents we have gathered I just wanted to say that we are on the cusp of putting a great deal more information and research up here, so please do come back. My motto is simple. Quote, Sandra was my mom. How far would you go if it had been yours? His website is thelordlukinthetruth.com, and if you want to visit it or have any information to help him out, there's, like, different ways you can get in contact with him on there. Um, and he has a lot more information on the case to go through on there, like, documents Mm -hmm. and like links to other documents and stuff but i also didn't find out about his um website or him like still trying to figure out where luke and john whatever this Mm -hmm. dumb man is went until the end of my research so i hope that i like you know put enough in here about his mom and showed that she is you know not just a nanny she was a human being who got killed accidentally because she was at the wrong place at the wrong time mm-hmm. because i know the majority of the articles do just say he killed the nanny he killed the nanny, that, he killed the nanny. like there's yeah and like i like to do in all the cases is have everybody's first name because oh, i yeah. hate that everybody's last name so hopefully i did his mom justice and he's happy mm-hmm. with the way this was told um even though he sounds nicer than me and doesn't hate the rich <laughs> but i do so that's the story of Sandra Rivet Rivet and John. I don't remember his last name, but he's truly unimportant. But if and you John. know, he just gets if to be you John. Know, he gets to be one of the many Johns in yeah. that story. So if anybody knows where he is, tell Interpol, tell police in London, tell Mr. Neil. Anyway, your turn. Ready? Yes. Okay. 
So my story is about Orion Williamson and Ambrose Bierce. My sources are Wikipedia and the Anison Star, which is a newspaper. So there isn't a lot known about Orion Williamson, um, as there was no real history that needed to be kept before or after his death. It didn't matter, um, which may seem it's weird that I'm talking about him then. <laughs> um, anyway, Orion worked as a farmer outside of Selma, Alabama. He had a wife and son. They weren't rich, but like it was a good enough farm. They weren't like suffering. Um, and... The only reason that anyone would ever remember him outside of his family and friends is because of what happened on one sunny July day in 1854. Okay. <laughs> um, so not even the local newspaper told this story until years after when the local lore of the event became popular enough that somebody wrote about it. Hmm. Um, so on that sunny day in July, while walking across the field um, to fix a fence, his son and wife were watching him from across the field on the porch. Two men were passing by in a buggy and were watching him cross the field because, like, there's nothing else to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he's walking, all of a sudden, he vanishes. Well, all four people are looking at him. Just Okay. Um, the men stop because they're like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> they go search for him at the spot he'd just been. You know, his wife and son go stop the search for him where he'd just been. But there are no traces. Not even his, like, tools. Like, all of him is gone. <laughs> um, they search the field themselves for hours. The next day, dozens of people arrive to help search the field in nearby woods looking for Orion. Um, they even bring in bloodhounds. They don't even pick up a trace of his scent. He's, like, gone, gone. Like, zapped out of the space, right? Like, crazy. Um, they they even, like, did some sort of, like, semi-plowing to make sure they didn't hit any, like, crevices or crags, like, any sinkholes or anything like that. Um, in replacement of, like, mowing the field because it was the olden times and you could just, yeah. like, mow the field. So what this was, like, was a quicker way to do that. Um, 1854. Okay. Um... So a few, every few years after Orion's disappearance, it would, like, become a popular thing for newspapers to remember. Like, at this day, this weird thing happened. Um, and one of the people who covered him was Ambrose Bierce. Um, during one of these periods of renew in, renewed interest. In 1880, a traveling salesman also told the story, but he reinvented it and told it anew. He changed the date, lo- um, changed the date to 1880, the location to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and the name to David Lang. Um... And this version was believed to also be true. It's like, wow, mm. these two farmers just disappeared. And, the, like, the David Lang version was believed to be true, and at least until the 1990, because I found one of the newspapers talking about it, like, it, and that, like, 1990, like, not that long ago. Yeah. Not 1890. Yeah. <laughs> 1990. Um, so while the disappearance of, um... David Ling is not true, and because nobody ever reported on Orion, it sort of makes me feel like it's not true, but he does, like, come up in, like, historical records as living in these spaces. Like, yeah. he was a person. Um, so what the real story is, who knows? But the point is, um, this is the, one of the few interesting stories that popped up for, like, Alabama true crime that wasn't um, terrible. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> Because I looked and I was just like, it's just, it's so, I can't do any of this. It's terrible. Um, for, like, obvious reasons. If you know the history of the U.S. South. And th- that's it. That was the whole entire story. It's like, well, that's not enough. But then something weird was, like, something, 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 blah, blah, blah. Ambrose Bierce 
weird, right? And I was like, well, why is Ambrose Bierce weird? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm looking for something to do. We can follow this little thread somewhere. So now we're going to talk about Ambrose Bierce. He was born in a log cabin in um, either Meigs or Meigs County, Ohio, in June 20, on June 24th in 1842. Yep. He was the tenth of thirteen children, all of which had names that started with A. It was, oh, and I, I wrote them. I wrote them down because um, they're fun. <laughs> so it's Abigail, Amelia, Anne, Addison, Aurelius, Amelda, Andrew, Albert, Ambrose, Arthur, Adelia, and Aurelia. <laughs> they're honestly not some of the weirdest for that. No, time. I was actually really impressed. It's like those are all they're real rel- names, relatively like. Um, it was weird that there was an Aurelia and an Aurelius. Yeah, but it was. His, like, their dad's name, like, their the dad's name, his middle name, and I think he went by it, so mm-hmm. that's why there's, that's just patriarchy. Um, so, all of his ancestors arrived in America between 1620 and 1640 as part of the Great Puritan Migration. Um, I only mention this because his writings were very critical of Puritanism, um, he himself being a staunch agnostic agnostic and um he was super not a fan of people who made a big fuss about genealogy it's like oh well i was related to blah 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 that was not his so thing. he's the opposite of what's his name yes George he's abso- they're actually is. yeah they're very which opposite. wasn't his dad and grandparents agnostic didn't i say that yeah i think so interesting turn of events anyway so he grew up poor but his parents instilled a great love of literature and writing in him it's you know like they're like, we don't have a lot, but we do have an entire library. We have um, education. Yes. <laughs> so at 15, he became a printer's devil and a small... A printer's addis- devil. Yes, that is that is the term for being a um, apprentice printer. You're a printer's devil. <gasps> at a small what? abolitionist newspaper in northern Indiana. Um, he attended the Kentucky Military Institute until it burned down sometime just before um, the Civil War. And I desperately tried to, without reading any books, figure out what date why it, the Kentucky yeah. Military Institute actually burned down or why. No, nothing told me why. They're like, it burned down. And then the Civil War happened. I mean, things do just burn down back then. <laughs> no, so. but when? When? They would have had to know when. Anyway, at the beginning of the Civil War, he enlisted with the 9th Indiana Infantry, um... In Wikipedia, it said the ninth, the Union 9th Indiana Infantry, and I was like, well, yeah, it's Indiana. They're yeah. all Union. And I told James that I thought it was they were being redundant by saying that, and James was like, not everybody just knows who was on what side in the Civil War. And I was like, that's fair, but also ridiculous that you don't know in Indiana's a northern state. I would, you know, I would say we know too much, but also, like, why don't other people know? Why aren't why don't they know what anything? A, yeah. They don't know anything. It's not that they no. don't know in depth details. Please. They don't know anything. How many times do we have to preach? Please learn your history. Please. Okay. So he did well during the war. He saved a Conrad under, under fire, and that got um like really talk, talked up. Um, he made a name for himself doing various things, including you know saving this guy. Um, and he earned support from a number of Union generals for his application to West Point, even, like, generals that didn't know him. He was talked of well enough that they also were like, yeah, he should get in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he ever goes for multiple oh. reasons, mainly um, that just a month after, like, sending in this application, he sustains this traumatic brain injury <gasps> at the Battle of um, Kennesaw Mountain. Oh, no. Um, this, the result of this brain injury for the rest of his life he would have bouts of fainting and irritability which is like in the grand scheme of traumatic brain injuries not that bad not the most terrible um, 
Um, Which there could have been more stuff though. And so. he was able to return to duty a few months later, <clears throat> but I think it's sort of just like put a hamper on mm-hmm. wanting to go study after that. A hamper. A hamper. A damper. Damper. <laughs> um, and he's discharged a few months before the end of the war. Um, not like dishonorably. He's just, he yeah. just, he spent, he spent his time there. Um, so he, after that, eventually rejoins the military again. Um, as part of an outpost inspection expedition in the Great Plains. Um, he starts in Omaha, Nebraska, and just heads west until he gets to San Francisco, just stopping at all the outposts along the way. Mm-hmm. And then once he reaches San Francisco, he finally officially resigns from the military. Um, in 1871, he marries Mary Ellen, went by Molly, um, her last name Day. So Mary Ellen Day. <laughs> um, together they had three children, Day, Lee, and Helen. Okay. So they had Daly and Helen. <coughs> um, both of his sons died young. Um, his son Dave committed suicide along oh. with... This is a whole thing, actually. He committed suicide, but it was an attempted murder-suicide combo because he also attempted to murder the woman who had rejected him and her fiancé. Shout out to John. <laughs> um, so it's not like she just rejected him. She had someone she had, else. Bro, bro, I'm engaged. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Please leave me alone. I don't know more about that. Maybe we'll I'll look into that, see if that's a story or not. And then his um, son Lee died of pneumonia um, that he contracted in relation to alcohol abuse. Oh, so they didn't die young. No, but they didn't die. Well, like they died I'm before. They died as children. No, no, they died as young adults. Okay. Sorry. Like, um, what, I understand the in the olden times. No, so I'm like, okay, fourteen makes sense for them to be getting engaged in this year. No, no, but. no, like young adults. Sorry. Um, so Ambrose and Molly separated in 1888. Um, separated. Yes, they separated in 1888 after he what found letters outing her lover. <gasps> Um, I think they divorced in like 1904, but like they're just they're after just not doing it After he let you name together. all of the kids after yourself, Molly. What <laughs> a selfish individual. Um, so in San Francisco, which is like where he ended up, he <laughs> stays there. He started his career in journalism, um, with one of his focuses being crime reporting. Oh. Um, he briefly remo- moved to England and attempts um, moved to England for a little bit. Did some um, like fiction writing there. Then he moves back to the U.S. Uh, to um, the Black Hills, where he attempts to be a local mine manager in the, um, for a New York mining company, which eventually fails. After this, he goes back to San Francisco to become a journalist again, um, eventually being considered one of the most influential and prominent um, writers in the West Coast. Hmm. He was good at what he did. So, Bierce was best known for his journalism work, but he was also a fiction writer, often highlighting the absurdity of death and the vastness and unknowability of the universe. Like, he was a big thinker. Yeah. He gets hired on by Hearst Newspaper, which is apparently a pretty prominent newspaper, um, and they, like, will send him off on assignments. Like, he's one of their go-to journalists, and they're big enough to send people off on national-level assignments, not just, like, local San Francisco things. Mm -hmm. So, in 1896, the Union Pacific and Central Railroads are devising a plot to introduce a bill in Congress that would exempt them from having to pay back their large, low-interest loans. Um, that the government had given them in order to build the Transcontinental Railroad, like the, mm-hmm. which is a big thing to do. Um, this loan was, um, in that time's money, um, $130 million, which is a lot Jeez. of money now. And that wouldn't build a Transcontinental Railroad now. But um, today that's worth uh, $4.57 billion. 
dollars. Oh my gosh. Um, so it's a lot of money. So they hope to get this bill passed in secret without public notice or hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hearst newspaper catches wind. He's they send Ambrose out. Um, <laughs> they he sent out to um, D.C. Washington, D.C., um, to prevent this from occurring, basically, to out it in the yeah. newspapers so that it can't happen in secrecy, at least. Mm-hmm. So they at least just some public outrage. Um, so an angry Collis P. Huntington, who is a Central Pacific executive, like, catches wind that Ambrose has been sent here. And again, he's known. He's not, like, a nobody. Um, and he meets him at the foot of Congress, like, at the stairs in front of Congress, and says, <laughs> and told him, to name his price, to back off, like, what do you, what, what can I give you so that you don't publish anything about 4. this? Four point three seven billion dollars. <laughs> no, literally, Audrey Ambrose <laughs> replies, "My price is one, is one hundred thirty million dollars." <laughs> Great minds think alike. If when you are ready to pay, I happen to be out of town, you may hand it over to my friend, the Treasury of the United States. <laughs> In this response, get him, like, Ambrose. What like was went um viral it went <laughs> there's no such thing as viral then but it was in like social every... media was just then invented by his response <laughs> and it was but in every major viral. newspaper across the country reported this that's hilarious um this this quote along with ambrose's coverage um and verbal attacks on the matter created such public sustain <laughs> that the bill was just plain old defeated like so just funny. didn't happen and then he returned to san francisco Worked there for a little bit. Eventually, he um, it moves back to D.C., still working for Hearst. Um, he was... Ambrose was often um, controversial because of his biting social criticisms and satire. <laughs> I thought um, you were going to stop and biting. <laughs> <laughs> he really liked biting. <laughs> he would get really angry and just bite just anybody bite nearby. People. No. Um, and this would... At time, create difficulties for his employer, but they kept him on through That's all of nice. it. Um, they had believed in what he did, apparently, which is really good. Um, I assume he's doing decent things based on the Wikipedia thing. Maybe somebody really biased wrote it, but there's no big, like, but he did do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so one <clears throat> such occasion, <laughs> they got him in a little bit of hot water. Uh, was, was when he wrote a poem about the assassination of Kentucky Governor William Goble. So the poem itself... Was he itself, already dead at this point? Or is it hoping uh, he dies? No, it, this guy was assassinated, so he wrote a poem so about it. So what's wrong with that? Um, a bullet that pierced Goble's breast cannot be found in all the West. Good reason it is speeding here to stretch McKinley in his beer. <laughs> um... <laughs> His beer is, is like, in his, to make, a beer is the coffin and the thing that holds up the coffin, like the little coffin table. Uh-huh. That combination of things is called a beer. So what it's, the poem is saying is to kill McKinley so he's in his beer, yeah. right? Um, so it wasn't necessarily the biggest problem when he wrote it. It was like, gosh dang it, really? Like, that's, that's not cool because it's the president, right? But a year later, um, when McKinley was actually assassinated, rival newspapers started to say that this poem that he wrote a year before was what had called for his assassination. That's so funny. <laughs> even even though I, that wasn't the case. It was just him being him. So let's get to his disappearance. When presidential is, assassinations, what a time to be alive. Right? Um which is which is why or like the weirdness her, but... was related to that original yeah. little story. It's because he also happened to disappear and he did cover it. Um, so on October 
1913 at the age of 71. So he's an old man for the times. Um, he's Ambrose, an old man for now. That's true. <laughs> but like an old, old man. Yeah. He left um, D.C. to tour Civil War battlefields because like, he was in the Civil War. It's an old man activity. That's an old man activity. He also was like a literal veteran. So yeah. it's like going back and... That was a th- also this is That's like nineteen thirteen. That's where I got my traumatic brain injury. Is right around when there's that big resurgence of like the daughters of the Confederacy and the daughters of the Union. This is when they're putting in all mm. of the um, memorials and stuff at all the battlefields and in all the parks. This is the exact same time frame. So it's that was like a thing that was happening then. So weird to think that he fought in the Civil War and is alive in nineteen thirteen. Yeah, right. Isn't that crazy? So um, by December of this expedition of, of nineteen thirteen, this um, little expedition brought him all the way down to el paso texas i do not know if there's any civil war battlefields there but he's in el paso this is where he crosses the border into mexico which at the time is going through a revolution um Hmm. so on juarez he's reportedly did he know he was going into mexico yes Okay. Because he goes, he then he, he then goes to Juarez. Well, I didn't know um, if he accidentally, like, overshot his destination. No, because he joins Pancho Villa's army. <laughs> Pancho Villa. 71? Well, he's not joining it. He's joining it as an observer. That's oh. literally the next thing in the sentence. Um, you know, to be a witness, um, to report it. Yeah. You know, this is a thing that journalists do, is mm-hmm. sit on the sidelines to see yeah. what happened. Um, so he's sort of joining in this position. By the way, if you don't know who Pancho Villa is, he is the revolutionary in this revolution. It's Pancho Villa versus somebody else. I think I say his name later. It's a name that, like, you're supposed to know, but I... Salazar, I think is his last name. I don't know anything about Mexican history. Anywho, Pancho Villa is the revolutionary. So he's joining the revolutionary side. Um, He witnesses the Battle of Tierra Blanca, um, which is, like, a major victory for Villa and his forces. Um... After the battle, he travels south to Chihuahua, um, the city, which is in the state, but to the city of Chihuahua. Um, his last known communication was sent on the 26th of December, 1913, to his close friend um, Blanche Partington, who was another prominent San Francisco journalist. So go her for being a lady, mm-hmm. a lady journalist. Go get a she's Blanche. Famous. And she was like a big one. Like, she's <clears throat> a known person. Um, he closed his letter with, as to me... I leave here tomorrow to an unknown destination. And this is the last time we ever hear from him (laughs) (laughs) with that fun closing. That means heaven. (laughs) (laughs) So um, after this, there's no further trace of Ambrose Bierce. So there's some theories as to what happened to him. Um, In one of his final letters he wrote, not the very last one, but one of the last ones he wrote, Mm -hmm. um, He's quoted as saying, goodbye, if you hear of me being stood up against a Mexican stone wall and shot to rags, please know that I think it is a pretty good way to depart this life. Um, It beats old age, disease, or falling down the cellar stairs. To be a gringo in Mexico, oh, that is euthanasia. Okay, okay, Ambrose. (laughs) Which is, honestly, I need to read more of his writings. Yeah. (laughs) So this could be in reference to that he knew someone was after him. Like, he's on the revolutionary side. That's something that sort of will happen in these yeah, kinds of socio-political climates. It's like, it's it's a revolutionary-based war. Those mm-hmm. aren't pretty. If you're caught on the wrong side, it means death. On either way. Like, you, yeah. if you're with the revolutionary, with the state, if the other side catches you, you might be in Done front for. of a firing squad. Um, And I, I'm leaning towards that's what that meant for mm-hmm. me personally. Um, a man named Joe Nickel, who is a professional skeptic. Um, Where can I sign up for that job? 
And this is, he literally investigates the paranormal from my skeptic point of view. I have no clue why he's counting, uh, um, commenting on any of this. Joe Nickel, get out of here. Because, again, his thing is, like, being a skeptic of the paranormal. But he said um, that he's like, well, we've never seen this letter to Parrington. So there's no proof that Bierce was ever even in this location. And Nickel thinks that Bierce committed suicide in the Grand Canyon, even though there's literally just as much evidence that this happened as that he was anywhere else in the world like no why would it be the grand canyon nickel there's absolutely no evidence of him being in the grand canyon that time at all by the way he might as well be in southern africa official evidence that he's in mexico (laughs) or what was it southeast africa with john yeah that's probably where he's at so there was an official investigation um launched by the u.s consulate because he is a person that people know yeah right he's not a nobody um so some of Pancho Villa's men were questioned um, about their accounts were contradictory because, like, who's necessarily always noticed it? There's, here's the thing. He's not the only random old American who's showing up for things like this yeah. because it's, it's like the concept of, like, old people living out the glory days and wanting mm-hmm. to die on the battlefield mercenary style. Um, so he's not necessarily the only old white man from the U.S. there. Yeah. So, like, I don't blame them for having contradictory stories because they're focusing on something honestly more important, which mm-hmm. is the revolution they're fighting. Um, so Pancho Villa's U.S. representative, Felix A. Sommerfeld, was contacted to look into um, Beers' disappearance, and he reported that Beers had last been seen in Chihuahua, just like the supposed letter suggested. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to think, because again, I am not looking at anything other than Wikipedia, that this is where the letters originally found out about is during um, Summerfield's investigation into the matter. And he's like, oh, yeah, this is this letter. And so you don't need to find the it now because it's yeah. not like it's not something we found in like 1998. It's mm-hmm. something that they found in 1913 and just doesn't exist anymore because it wasn't necessarily important because it was someone else's letter. Like, Yeah. So if... Maybe that family has it. Maybe it burned. Maybe it got thrown away. Who knows? That's not necessarily Christ. important right now. Um, and then the last thing is, according to oral tradition, um, that was documented by priest James Leonard. No clue why. Um, it was important that he noted it, but it was mentioned, so I might as well share it. Um, in Sierra Mojada, um, Cahuila, that's a place... <laughs> I can't Spanish. Me neither. <laughs> um, I can't British. But anyway, so. <laughs> according to this, the oral tradition that was documented um, by in this, this priest location. in this specific location, which is not terribly far from Chihuahua, like the city, mm-hmm. um, Beers had been executed in that town um, by firing squad and was buried in the town's local cemetery. Hmm. So I, I do think that's what happened to him. I think he got caught on the wrong side of a revolution and didn't mind. And that's my quick story about Ambrose Bierce, and I want to know more about him now. Yeah, he's just very for personal use. <laughs> Whew. That was, that was, that was, that, Audrey, that was so much. <laughs> this is a long, very interesting story, in my opinion. Both of them were. Mm-hmm. Well, our ending cut out whenever we were recording, so it's just me, but try not to kill anybody and don't mess with Ouija boards. Bye. <laughs>